We live in difficult and challenging times. How can academia contribute to diffuse polarization, to expand policy options? In part, it can do so by engaging in public dialogue. About this and many other fascinating topics is this conversation with Ulises Mejías in this episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have uh, with us today Ulises Mejías. Ulises is professor in the Department of Communication Studies at State University of New York, the College of Oswego, um, where he has been affiliated in faculty capacity since 2007. Since 2015, he's also the director of the Institute for Global Engagement at the same university. He did his uh, Bachelor in Fine Arts and his uh, Master of Science at Ithaca College, not very far from SUNY Oswego, uh, and his doctorate in education at Teachers College uh, at Columbia University, just, you know, four and a half hours south uh, driving uh, yes. to the city. Um, he is uh, one of the foremost experts in critical internet studies, uh, sociological anthropology of data, uh, political economy of digital media. He uh, has many publications. Uh, most recently, um, his second book, The Cost of Connection, uh, co-authored with Nick Kuldry. We are truly delighted to have you with us today. Ulises, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you very much. Very pleased to be here and uh, very excited. But we're missing the coffee, but everything else is here, I think. All right. We have the virtual coffee with us. Yes. <laughs> so, so Ulises, tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how's the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Yes. Thank you, Pablo. Also, you know, um, we don't often get opportunities like this to reflect on our trajectory. So I'm very touched that you asked me to participate uh, in this podcast. Oh, thank you. Please. Well, yes. Then, um, how did it all begin? I think for me, I would probably frame it in terms of uh, crossing of a boundary and crossing of a border. And I want to be very careful here because as someone originally from Mexico, I think um, obviously when we talk about crossing borders, it means something very specific. And I want to acknowledge right off the bat 
that my crossing of the Mexico-US border was from a very privileged position. Um, so um, I think it's tragic and it saddens me a lot to see uh, the kind of experiences uh, uh, Mexicans and other Latin Americans are having these days uh, in just in terms of crossing that border. But my crossing of that border was very privileged. I was one of 20 students, Mexican students selected by the Institute of International Education uh, for a scholarship program. So after I finished um, high school in Mexico, I applied in this program and they select around 20 uh, students. And basically what they do is they help you apply for college in the United States. So that whole big process uh, that was completely unknown to me of applying for uh, colleges and writing the letters and all that, they took care of submitting the materials. I, of course, only had to do the, the writing, the providing of the data. Um, and then I was offered, uh, I was accepted, uh, offered various scholarships, ended up coming to Ithaca and Ithaca College. But as I look back, I think it was that crossing that initiated a process of self-reflection. I mean, to put it simply, Pablo, I think if I had stayed in Mexico, I would be, uh, perhaps I would be a scholar today, but uh, maybe interested in very different things. And if I had been born here in the United States, I don't think my approach to uh, uh, the issues I'm dealing with uh, would be the same. This might seem kind of obvious perhaps to you and to the listeners. But I think to me, that process of confronting that difference and confronting that difference within myself, uh, which forced me to uh, rethink how I thought of myself as someone from this country now um, studying in this other country. I think that initiated the process of trying to reconcile, trying to put together different things, which hopefully you continue to see now uh, when, uh, in my work on data colonialism, right? Uh, trying to put two things together that maybe uh, usually we don't think of those two things as going together, data on the one hand, colonialism on the other. So that interplay, that hybridity, which many people have talked about and written about, I think now I see myself embodying it and uh, having started that whole process with that process of, of crossing that border. Okay, um, that's very interesting. So following up on that, the, the book on data colonialism has been exceedingly impactful, um, even though it's only been out less than two years ago, right? Not even. Um, yes, August of 2019. Right, a year and a half ago. So yeah. how, how did that project come about? Because there is, you know, also there is a crossing of the Atlantic Ocean in the authoring team, right? Um, uh, how did that uh, emerge and how was the collaboration? How was writing with Nick? Um, tell us a little bit about the behind the scenes on that project. Yes, well, uh, that in itself is a very rewarding story and something I'm uh, very fortunate to have found myself in this position. Um, because I think, you know, when we're speaking, as I was just speaking about this 
crossing of a border as enabling certain conceptualizations. In the case of this particular project and the book, The Cost of Connections, uh, The Cost of Connection, it wouldn't have been possible also without Nick's uh, presence and um, his contribution, his ideas, the opportunity to develop the ideas in conversation with him. So I think maybe, you know, um, the ability to bring certain kinds of fields in conversation with each other uh, um, was something that um, um, I realized as an opportunity. This was uh, something that could be useful, but it was in collaboration with Nick that those ideas were fully formed. And so uh, um, from my experience, this is the first time I co-authored anything seriously with anybody. I mean, I have other projects with students, et cetera, but this was my first true collaboration in that sense. And like you pointed out, it's not like Nick and I um, are part of the same institution. We don't even live in the same country. So um, uh, uh, that initial contact I think was also very interesting. Um, we just know each other from conferences, from attending the same, talks, uh, we uh, were of course aware of each other's work. So I think the first time we met uh, in person was at a conference in Cambridge. And so um, I think, you know, from the beginning it was clear that we were interested in many of the same things. And so uh, originally I think I proposed a collaboration and thought, you know, I like Nick's ideas. I think I could learn a lot from having this kind of conversation with him. Um, so I suggested, why don't we write an article? And he came back and said, why don't we write a book? So I thought, okay, maybe I wasn't prepared for that. I was a little bit intimidated by the prospect of, just in terms of the length. Uh, I have written one previous book, uh, um, Unthinking the Network, um, from uh, University of Minnesota Press. Um, so uh, that was my experience, you know, as a solitary writer. And so the idea, I think, appealed to me, but I was a little bit uh, uh, nervous about what that would take. But uh, I think uh, Nick and I have different abilities that complement uh, each other very well. I mean, we also have many similar abilities, which also helps and we speak the same language when it comes to uh, uh, the theorizing and the conceptualization, but uh, I think it was a very productive uh, partnership from my perspective in that sense, in which I think he's very good at doing certain things, I'm good at doing other things, by the time we put it all together, I think, um, you know, it was a very fruitful collaboration. Um, and I think uh, both he and I believe that as we say this, some of uh, the sum of the parts or is greater than the whole, that kind of thing. I think uh, we are both uh, very pleased uh, with the result in the sense that we recognize this is not something either one of us could have um, done by ourselves. It only happened because we came together and we collaborated in these ideas together. Excellent. Now I want to delve a little bit deeper on the mechanics of the collaboration, thinking in particular about potentially younger listeners who are getting started 
in their careers, there is, as, as, as you know, a, a trend towards more teamwork in the academy, in particular more on the sort of uh, quantitative or behavioral side of the communications uh, field, uh, media studies field. But it's becoming also more common on the sort of culturally oriented, interpretive, um, uh, humanistic side from which both you and Nick uh, come from. Um, so, so for for our younger, um, uh, you know, listeners, or people getting started in the art of, you know, collaboration in, in, in a big project, right? Um, how, how did you do it? So did you divide the chapters uh, and then each of you took the lead on one and then edited the other? Did you, um, were you at any point writing in a collocated fashion in the same city and then trading drafts or was it all with, you know, an ocean in between? And, and having done this so successfully, you have like, you know, do's and don'ts uh, of how to do this? Right. Yes, great. Thanks for that question. I would say it was a mixture of all of the things you mentioned. I mean, uh, just as far as the logistics, uh, there was a lot of emailing back and forth, but Nick did have the opportunity to visit Ithaca and we spent some days just, you know, locked up uh, uh, here at home and just uh, thinking and writing and discussing. Um, I think it, just in terms of energy levels, I'm not, uh, uh, you know, afraid to say, uh, Nick, I think, uh, has a lot more creative energy than I do. I think I'm more of a contemplative person and I like to discuss something, but then I need to kind of like retreat and process it on my own, whereas he can just keep going. And then he goes back and writes on his own and then he's ready the next day. So I love that energy. And it was very important for the project too. Um, so thankfully we did have the opportunity to both collaborate in person and um, online too, as well. Uh, at the beginning, I think, you know, we had lots of conversations about the themed topics. Uh, we continuously suggested things that the other person should read. I think uh, just to give you an example in terms of uh, post-colonial theory, all of that, uh, uh, you know, I was sending things to him telling him you need to read this. This is uh, something I find very uh, uh, interesting or uh, insightful. He was sending me lots of things and just more like the sociological approach to the study of media. Um, so that was amazing too, just to have someone, you know, that can uh, um, in some ways bombard you with uh, reading suggestions while you're doing the same as well. That was very productive. So we did initially say, um, why don't I start writing a chapter on this and you can write a chapter on that. And then when we had drafts, we would share them with each other. We would provide comments. Um, I think it's true that our writing styles are a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So just in terms of thinking about the voice and tone in the final product, we have to start thinking about, okay, how is this gonna sound? How is this, you know, what, what tone should we approach here or there? So we had all of those conversations. And um, what we did then is we each took responsibility for writing some of what I would call the middle chapters. Um, and then uh, we wrote together more the introduction and the conclusion. Um, I think, uh, you know, to add more complexity to all of this, our teaching schedules are very different. 
our teaching loads sometimes can be very different. Um, I'm at a state institution um, where teaching loads are kind of higher. Uh, Nick fortunately had a little bit more time uh, at some points of the year where he could devote more time, but then at other times he was very busy with his own teaching. So it was a logistics uh, challenge to get all of this done, but I think we managed to, to do okay. Uh, as far as your question about, you know, what advice I would give to someone, I think what this experience taught me is that I think sometimes in partnerships, and maybe this applies to all sorts of partnerships, friendships, romantic partnerships, as well as work partnerships, we look for someone who can make us comfortable. We look for someone who is similar, uh, who can... Um, Maybe the level of expertise is the same so that we feel comfortable. We, I would say uh, in this particular case, and actually this is the advice I would give uh, also when it comes to friendships and even romantic relationships, don't get too comfortable. Don't seek out that uh, um, similarity because at the end of the day is a difference that generates uh, interesting insights. It's the difference that uh, is productive. So in many ways, like I said, Nick and I have some similarities, but in other ways, we're very different people, very different backgrounds, very different skill sets, very different cultural uh, sensibilities and upbringing, very different disciplines. You know, he's a sociologist, whereas I am a more of an interdisciplinary communication scholar, also interested in education and, you know, uh, uh, very different in that sense, but looking back, it was those differences, that ability to unsettle and to live with uh, that diversity and to uh, um, experience what it means then to have to defend your position, uh, what it means to be able to bring an idea uh, from a field, from a perspective that the other person wasn't contemplating at all because that area is so completely new to them. Uh, that was, I think, the enriching part. So I think that's the advice I would give, that be willing to take risks, be willing to uh, um, take chances. And I've seen, uh, uh, to get too much into the personal stuff, but I think in my own marriage, I think this lesson applies as well, because my wife is from Pakistan. Uh, my wife is also very different from who I am, but it's been those differences, I think, that have provided that richness in our relationship and in our marriage. So it applies to friendships, it applies to love. I would suggest it applies also to academic collaborations where we need to be comfortable with those differences. Of course, that's how it's worked out for me. Uh, uh, maybe, uh, I don't know what it, the experience has been in your case, maybe sometimes working with someone who's very similar uh, has been productive or for listeners, uh, but that has been my experience at least. Okay, and just out of curiosity, how long did the project take from the time you first discuss the possibility of a book until the time you sent the final version of the manuscript. Yeah. More or less. Uh, uh, I'm very bad with dates, but... Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to put you on the spot. No, 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 it's okay, because I think also what happens is that it was so intense. 
and so many things were happening. And I was trying to balance this with the teaching and with service. And you know how academic mm -hmm. life is. Um, I think really um, uh, we started uh, uh, to think about this project in um, 2013, 2014. Uh, we had an opportunity to you know, meet and discuss things. And really, I, th I would say the bulk of the writing really happened across a period of three years, which is kind of intense if you think about it. Uh, because then by um, 2018, obviously, uh, I would say even 2017, we had uh, the draft in pretty good shape and we started sending it out. Uh, uh, well, by that time, we already had a contract with, with Stanford. But, um, and as you know, uh, publishing takes uh, a long time as well, just the actual process of the editing and the printing and all of that. So. Yes, it took about uh, at least a year just, you know, of us sitting there uh, uh, waiting for the book to finally come out. But this is, again, also an area in which Nick, Nick is an expert and very good because he said, while we wait for the book, we should have an article, a journal article that comes out earlier. So we have um, an article that came out with um, in the journal Television and New Media. We were very fortunate also to be approached by the editors of this specific um, volume, uh, Stefania Milan and Emiliano Trede, which uh, I'm sure you know as well. So um, that was the other exciting part about this. Even though we kind of came up with the idea of data colonialism, or we thought we did, by the time uh, publication was ready, we started to realize other people have been thinking about this. Uh, maybe not in the exact same terms, but uh, in similar terms. And I think also it's worth mentioning the work of uh, Paula uh, Ricarte, um, also from Mexico. So yes, we were able to put together this article which summarizes our um, argument. And basically it came out in 2018 and it started to introduce the idea of uh, data colonialism to an audience. I think the article has been very successful, fortunately been downloaded more than 11,000 times by now. So this was great planning, I think, on Nick's part, really, that uh, um, while we wait for the book to come out, we should have an article that begins to open the uh, conversation and uh, to get the ideas out there. So that's part of it as well. And even after the publication of the book, we published other things. So it's become a larger project. It's not just about the one book, I would say. Okay, that's very interesting. And that, since you mentioned Paola, Paola or Paola? Paola. Paola. Yeah. Um, so an, an, another aspect of this intellectual journey is the um, project that you have with her, right? I mean, Munich and, and her lead Tierra Común. Tierra Común, right? yes. Um, how did that come about? And what it consists, if you could explain a little bit what it consists of for, for the listeners. Yes. So, Tierra Común, again, um, Paola Ricarte is, uh, uh, teaches at the ITESM, uh, a school in Mexico. And um, I think the very first time uh, we introduced these ideas about data colonialism, actually, Nick had the opportunity to attend a conference in Colombia. Uh, at that time I was teaching and I couldn't uh, join there. 
But I think that's the first time that you know we started talking about data colonialism in public. And Paola was there at that same conference. So uh, of course they immediately you know uh, realized uh, the alignment in terms of uh, certain projects and ideas. Um, and so he introduced me to Paola. We started uh, conversations, discussions, and sharing uh, writing as well. Uh, Paola, by the way, also has an article in the same uh, volume of the, of the journal I was mentioning, TVNM, Television and New Media. So she was also able to uh, write something for that. Um, at some point in 2019, we were invited to go to Mexico, which is my homeland. Um, <clears throat> so this was uh, a very important journey for me because it was really the first time I had presented work here and there before. But it was really the first time where I was presenting um, substantially uh, uh, my work uh, to a Mexican audience. And Paula was uh, key in organizing the trip and inviting us to participate here and there. So during that trip, I think um, she and Nick were talking about uh, you know, this idea of Tierra Común originated, which is really a network. So uh, we don't want the ideas of Tierra Común just to be you know, academic ideas that live in journals and people read them and discuss them and that's it. Um, Nick and Paola were really central to putting this idea together. And they realized that, well, uh, if we want to form a network of people interested in these issues, which clearly there is such a network, um, it needs to be virtual. It needs to be uh, provide an online space for us to interact because traveling in Latin America might be more difficult to some people than others. The resources are not always there. So Tierra Común emerged as this network of scholars, yes, but also activists, um, um, basically who are interested in exploring this concept of data colonialism as it is lived in the global South, as it is lived uh, particularly in Latin America. So that's sort of how the idea came about. Uh, like I said, uh, uh, Nick and Paola were the key players there uh, uh, to put it together. Uh, they asked me to come on board. And so then we started inviting people. And by now, as you know very well, uh, uh, it's quite a large group. Uh, I think, of course, then the pandemic came along, which made certain kinds of collaborations more difficult. But uh, uh, we have had a, a couple of meetings. And so um, I think it's a very, for, from my perspective, it's been a very enriching and engaging network. I think even though, as I started to say at the beginning, my journey into academia started with crossing that border, I think, as you know very well, uh, those border crossings always happen also along colonial lines. And to this day, most of my interactions have been with the West and with the North. And uh, as a Latino, I've obviously been in Mexico, my homeland, and to Guatemala, and that's it. And I don't know too many people from the rest of Latin America. And so again, this was a lesson in the coloniality of uh, the flows of information, right? Even when we talk about academia. And so the, through Tierra Común, and through the work of um, the writing the book, I've gotten to know people like you, and I've gotten to know all the integrantes of Tierra Común uh, and share my work with them. So that's been an amazing experience. 
just to form those connections outside of the traditional colonial flows of uh, information between the South and the North. Fabulous. Um, has that experience began to sort of shape also how you approach research issues, research questions or topics? even though it's fairly recent, but I agree with you that it's much more north-south than south-south, right? Um, yes. So, but has that had already, do you see it sort of an effect in, in the questions you ask, the projects you imagine, etc.? For sure, for sure, certainly. I think the way I see it is, you know, this project of putting together the book and the concepts around data colonialism, in some ways, it is a theoretical framework. And I know, you know, we're past the age of meta-narratives and uh, uh, big theoretical frameworks just for the sake of theory. Um, but I think Nick and I felt that it was necessary, whatever critiques of uh, datafication and the information society and the digital age and um, data capitalism and all of that surveillance capitalism, uh, were uh, we were encountering, we felt they were they did not go far enough. They didn't provide this umbrella uh, framework for understanding what's happening in both the north and the south, what's happening in social media, but what's also happening in terms of surveillance and the gig economy. So we very much wanted to put together a framework to try to understand all of these issues, um, and that framework, of course, is influenced by. Uh, post-colonial theory, decolonial theory, and the 500 years of uh, trying to make sense of colonialism and then capitalism. But now that that theory is there, I think, uh, at least from my perspective, uh, this experience has allowed me to start to fill in the holes and start to listen to the voices that fill in the holes that provide the actual supporting data that makes the framework valid and uh, useful at all. So through networks like Tiena Comun, uh, I got to know people uh, who are doing the research on site. You know, I've gotten to, uh, I've had the opportunity to listen to the research that people are doing in Argentina or in Ecuador or in Brazil. And so to me, that's been incredibly enriching to basically, you know, uh, uh, find the supporting evidence for this larger theory, right? That at the moment we were conceptualizing, Nick and I, uh, we knew of course uh, uh, um, the evidence and the supporting and the fact that people have been doing this work in the global South for decades. So by no means uh, did we think we were, you know, creating something completely new, but as a result of publishing this work, I think the most enriching and rewarding experience for me has been to get to know these people who are doing this research throughout the world, in particular in Latin America, and their research in turn is shaping the way I think about these issues. Their research is shaping the questions that I ask. And in getting to know people like you, Pablo, you know, and reading your own work, I think of course that always has that effect on our own um, work and on our own understanding of the world and our, our, I think our own understanding of ourselves. So that has been amazing. Excellent. Now, 
speaking about understandings of oneself, you, you mentioned several times your positionality as a Latino person, and you're also Latin American um, by, by origin, um, Mexican in particular. So how has that sort of play out in your academic practice? Not just your research, but your teaching, your you know, community service, your networking, your experience at conferences, etc. Has that affected at all? And if so, how? Of course it has. Um, I think in different ways and at different points, I uh, related to those, to those identities and differences differently. Um, I think, let me think about this. Or how to put this. <clears throat> I think it's made me a better teacher and a more reflective teacher, uh, for instance. But I do want to start by acknowledging, again, just as I did at the beginning, that um, uh, my position as a white Hispanic, when I fill out the census here in the United States, there's a box specifically for people like me, uh, which means the way I interpret it, uh, looks white, but is not white inside, right? Uh, so in many ways, I do want to acknowledge, again, the privilege that comes with that because I can walk into a store, I can perhaps even go to a gun show and people will not look at me in a funny way, right? My experience of racism uh, has been very different um, because I pass as white, basically. I guess that's what I'm trying to say, uh, which doesn't mean I haven't experienced racism or uh, discrimination uh, after 9-11, even in a super liberal town like Ithaca, our neighbors came to tell us that now was the time for people who hate the United States to get out of the country. But that was because I am married to someone from Pakistan and we are Muslim. So, you know, and they happen to know that. But racially, of course, you know, they wouldn't be able just looking at me to, to make any assumptions. So um, in some ways, yes, uh, a white Hispanic means I pass as white, but uh, I definitely don't feel like white inside. And to the extent that I've been able to uh, play with that difference in the classroom, for instance, I think it has been very productive uh, because I've been able to use that in some ways to challenge students' assumptions. Because again, they see me and they assume white professor, yes, with a weird name. But then once I start to talk to them about certain political ideas and where I come from. And so they realize, okay, this is, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> uh, I think they go through the same process I, I've been going through. So it has shaped my teaching. It has, of course, shaped my research. Uh, um, I think there it's been kind of like the opposite effect, right? Because I think when people see my name in publications or when they see my name in conference proceedings, uh, of course, they can immediately realize I am not a traditional white Anglo person. So uh, they, again, make certain assumptions. And then when I uh, um, uh, and, you know, get up to uh, approach the podium or whatever, sorry, there's that moment of uh, cognitive dissonance, right? Uh, again, the white person, that's not white. So uh, yes, it has definitely shaped uh, I would say um, 
all aspects of, uh, of my work in terms of the kinds of scholarship I do and in terms of the kinds of teaching I do, for sure. And, you know, for networking, for, you know, the conference circuit and all of that, have you noticed uh, that that plays a role as well? I'm asking because uh, previous, uh, you know, guests in the podcast have, have mentioned that. Um, uh, not necessarily how they position themselves, but how they are positioned by others. Have you have you seen that? Experienced that? Not seen that experience. No. I think so. I think um, um, it's true. And you know, to be honest, and I think uh, um, Nick would be okay with me sharing this. But we have talked about, for instance, the way in which different people make different assumptions about who's the main author of the book, which is quite interesting because, uh, and it goes both ways, by the way. Um, you know, we consider our work to be co-authored. Mm -hmm. And I think we're both perfectly comfortable saying, you know, this is a joint work. Uh, it was shaped, conceptualized by both of us. It was written by both of us. Uh, but it is interesting to see how, for instance, sometimes invitations come to him. Mm -hmm. you know, like, okay, as the author of The Cost of Connection, can you please come and talk to him? Sometimes invitations come to me. So I'm not saying, you know, uh, by any means that this is just a, a one-way thing. So uh, we've talked about it and we laughed about it. And I think we have sort of agreed that um, how those things happen says more about the people making those assumptions than it, that it's not about us, in other words, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, uh, it's not about us, it has to do with the people who might make some assumptions about, well, this is a work on data colonialism, so therefore Nick Coltry must be the main author. Or, on the other hand, Ulysses Mejias must be the main author because it is about data colonialism. So it's kind of interesting to see how that happens. But I think the interesting part to me, Pablo, is that what do we do with those assumptions? Uh, once they are made, do they open up spaces for then for us to intervene? And so I would say that no matter what assumptions have been made in terms of inviting me, not inviting me or whatever, uh, we or I always take that space as an opportunity to intervene and to say what I need to say. So uh, um, I never just take it as a given or I try to anyway, not take it as a given, it always opens up doors and opportunities to uh, make an intervention and say what you need to say. And in terms of making an intervention and say what you need to say, if, if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change, what would you wish for? <laughs> yes, I only get one wish. I have to complain. You, you can have more than one. <laughs> as many as you wish. <laughs> I have a long list. Of, <laughs> I have a long list of things that I would like to change. So it's uh, yeah, uh, I want to be limited. No, but I get your point, and I'll try to keep it short because I mean I, I do have lots of ideas, not just about our field, but about academia in general. Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, for instance, we need to 
I would love it if we can move to a four-day week in academia uh, and receive Fridays for some sort of day of service, you know, not in the traditional uh, way in which universities think about it, but uh, as a day in which uh, students, along with faculty, along with staff, can just dedicate to, you know, grappling with projects um, that benefit our communities, that benefit society. Um, so I would love lots of different things like that. Um, but I think uh, in terms of just keeping it to one wish, I've been actually discussing with my students in my, I am teaching a graduate class on science, technology, and the media. And so we've been talking a lot about um, science journalism. And there was one article in particular recently that I liked. The authors are Nisbet and Fahi, and the article is New Models of Knowledge-Based Journalism. And what I liked about it is the way in which they ascribe three functions to the science journalist, which I think are functions that we need to, as scholars, also adopt. There's been a lot of talk recently about public humanities, about doing humanities in terms of, uh, you know, uh, uh, projects that benefit the public. I think we need to also talk about public communication, or public mm -hmm. media studies, perhaps. And to do that, I think we need these three functions. I think my wish is that we all become knowledge brokers, which means uh, um, accept the responsibility of our job, which is basically as communication scholars to translate, to explain, to um, take complicated ideas and unpack them and critique them and analyze them and offer new conclusions and offer new insights, you know, uh, um, in a public facing way, as a way to do some sort of service uh, in our communities. So that's the first function to be knowledge brokers. The second one is as dialogue brokers, because as I just mentioned, I think the job of the scholar is not just to publish something and go home. Uh, these interventions, theoretical, um, empirical, quantitative, qualitative, whatever we're doing, I think uh, we need to engage the public and we need to create dialogue. I think we need to convene discussions with the public through our work. Uh, the idea that, you know, what I do is just write books and then that's all I do. I think uh, my wish is that uh, we abandon that idea, that we fully think of ourselves as public scholars. Um, and then the last function is the function of a public broker that uh, these authors of this article I'm mentioning um, talk about uh, basically um, acknowledging that we live in very controversial times. I think what the public communication scholar can do, and this is my final wish, is that we can diffuse some of this controversy. We can diffuse some of this polarization uh, in, around these controversies by, as these authors say, by expanding the range of policy options, by uh, letting, you know, by engaging in uh, dialogues, by engaging with the public in these dialogues about, you know, what are the options, the policy um, options that we have available to deal with this problem. It's not just, you know, well, 
I uh, believe that global warming is real and the only way to solve it is this issue. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we have people who believe global warming is not real. And so then we need to present a range of policy options that allow us to uh, make progress and solve these issues, but uh, approach them as, um, as discussions, not just get centered on, on our own opinions, ideologies, and pretend that um, you know, there's only one solution to these problems. I think our role, our role as public uh, scholars doing public communication is precisely about uh, facilitating these conversations. Wonderful, wonderful, very insightful. Thank you very much, Ulysses. It's been a pleasure uh, to have you with us uh, in this episode of El Café Latinx. Um, I uh, want to thank you again. I want to thank our listeners for staying uh, to the end and invite uh, them to join us for the next one. Ulysses, my friend, thanks again. Thank you very much, Pablo. Muchas gracias. Hasta la próxima. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi. 